What up, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm in studio with Joseph Cacharo. What's Ca- going on? Cash. What's going on, man? Uh, it's It's been a week, uh, and we've missed a lot. And uh, so we're here to kind of uh, pour over the rubble as uh, the dust is cleared on some of this stuff. Because, uh, you know, since we last potted, basically an entire series has come and gone. The Portland Trailblazers have been eliminated from the playoffs. And uh, over in the East, we have a 2-2 series. So why don't we start there just because we had a game last night uh, and a very surprising game in terms of the outcome and the margin of victory. The Raptors, after going down 2 nothing, and looking at a couple different points, like they, they were about to go down 3 nothing in just a really tense back and forth Pretty ugly game three. They come back in game four and absolutely lay waste to the Bucks. And we're going back to Milwaukee now. It's a best of three. What did you see? You know, we can go back to game three as well. But but basically, what have you seen, I guess, if you want to take the series as a whole, strategically in terms of, you know, potential adjustments moving forward, how you see the series playing out from here? Um, just talk to me about what you've seen. All right, so a few things. One, um, as the series has gone on, the Raptors' uh, shot quality has actually gone up. And it's been the opposite for the Bucks. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it's a trend. It could very well change going back to Milwaukee. But just looking at that, um, combining that with the fact that putting Kawhi on Giannis as his primary defender has definitely affected Giannis and the Bucks' offense as a whole, looking at the damage the Raptors' defense has done to Milwaukee in the half court when they don't allow the Bucks to get out and run, taking all those things into consideration, look, obviously the series isn't over. I think it's going the distance, but you start to see patterns that maybe the Raptors have solved the Bucks in a way. I don't know what the Bucks can do to change that because it's, you know... First of all, they don't run a lot of pick and rolls for Giannis, right? So it's not like the kind of thing where you can say, well, they just can run some screen actions and get Kawhi off them. That's just not the case. They don't do it. I, I can't remember who tweeted it, but someone like, you know, Kawhi, for example, has had a hundred and something, like 160 something um, actions as the pick and roll ball handler. Giannis is like 16. Like they just don't use him enough in the, in those kinds of actions to get Kawhi off them. And you've seen it the last two games when Kawhi's on him as the primary defender and when he's not. It is a serious thorn in his side. It's a serious thorn in the Bucks' side. So unless Milwaukee can force some turnovers, get out and run, get back out and transition, I, I really do feel like the Raptors' defense, mostly thanks to Kawhi on Giannis, has, has solved them a little bit. I think solve is probably a bit strong. Obviously, the Bucks have had a really hard time scoring in the half court in this series. And I don't think that's an accident. Toronto's half court defense is excellent. I think, you know, you're talking about needing to run more pick and rolls for Giannis. I actually think they've set a lot of ball screens for him. I think maybe using him as a screener a little bit more often might benefit them. It's problematic because Eric Bledsoe has just been a zero offensively. The Raptors are clearly, you know, completely ignoring him, giving him all the leeway in the world to shoot, and he hasn't been able to hit anything. I think... Like, from outside of five feet, I, he's hit maybe, like, four field goals in the entire series. His, his shooting split for the series? 24-10-69. Yeah. So, that's that's Van Vliet-esque. And we can talk about Fred in a second. He had a big breakout game four. But that, that's just been pretty disastrous. And it's it's really limiting what the Bucks can do in the half court because they're used to starting their possessions with Giannis controlling the ball up top. That is 
how their sort of actions flow. He gets into the paint. He's either going to score at the rim or he's going to get fouled or he's going to kick it out to somebody who's open or is going to like trigger a swing sequence that's going to create an open three for somebody else. And what he's finding is he is just running into a wall of arms every single time. And the Raptors have done a really good job of taking away his passing angles. And when he's managed to make those passes out, they're often rushed. He's often falling down. They're not particularly accurate passes. When they do find their targets, the Bucks have struggled to knock down open shots. Even when those passes have been on target, the Raptors' rotations have been very, very good. They've done a great job of recovering. They've, they've hard-doubled Giannis. And once they do that, they get themselves into rotations, and their rotations have just been excellent. I mean, that's, that's just a credit to their defense. And certainly Milwaukee's passing can be a little bit more crisp. Their shot-making can be better. I expect it to when they go back home. But... They've done a really good job of neutralizing Giannis without letting everybody else go off. And so I think that goes both ways. There there are things that Milwaukee can do to counter that. And I I do think one of them is trying to use Giannis a little bit more as a screener and just putting him in different positions where he's getting the ball. Because clearly, having him initiate from up top has not been particularly fruitful. And I think, to me, it's obvious that Brogdon needs to be in the starting lineup. I just don't think Miritich has really given them enough defensively he hasn't been especially good his size hasn't really been a factor because it's not like he's been particularly good on the glass he can't really do a whole lot of damage in the post and he's not knocking down shots right now so I don't think that what he's giving them is is enough to justify his spot in the starting lineup I think Brogdon had a rough game four but aside from that has been very good hasn't really looked to be showing any ill effects of that knee injury I think they got to put him back in the starting lineup, and I think that's going to help open things up a bit. But Bledsoe absolutely has to be better. Yeah, so uh, I've been doing takeaways after every Raptors game in these playoffs. And after game one and game three of this series, I wrote in those takeaways that at some point in this series, Malcolm Brogdon is going to replace Nikola Miritich in the starting lineup. After game four, I'm now convinced he should replace Eric Bledsoe. And no, no, but here's why. (laughs) Okay. This is why. So... I agree with everything you said about Miritich. He's bringing almost nothing to the table. But you look at, like, Eric Bledsoe right now. They're daring him to shoot, and he can't. I mentioned how atrocious his shooting numbers are. Drives have been almost reckless in a way. Like, it's not like he's finishing inside or getting to the rim uh, with the ease that he's used to. And he's also not doing that great of a job defensively either. So the way I see it is, if you replace... Miritich with Brogdon, regardless of whether Miritich is using his size effectively, the point is you are giving up some size, right? If you replace Bledsoe with Brogdon, you're replacing a guard with a guard. You're making the Raptors have to account for another shooter, which just makes the job of like helping and recovering that much tougher. And also, I feel like Bledsoe could benefit from going to the bench and maybe getting a look against, say, a guy like Fred Van Vliet more than Miritich could be improved by simply going to the bench, right? Because if you bring Brogdon in and you got Miritich on the bench, like, I don't know, what's your bench rotation at that point? Miritich, Connaughton. Hill. Hill, yeah. Ilyasova. Like, like, I mean, those guys were lights out in game two. And, yeah. and I mean, Hill and Brogdon were outstanding in game three as well. They're basically the only reason Milwaukee goes to overtime in that game. I... I'd li- I feel like if I'm Milwaukee, I'd like to see what Bledsoe can do, not even in limited minutes, because he's already down to like 20 minutes now, um, but maybe just with some different lineup combinations out there. And I feel like you can get, if you can get Brogdon in and, and Bledsoe out, I still, w- I'm more scared of Miritich as a shooter than I am of Eric Bledsoe, right? So at that point, you really are going four out around Giannis. 
Right. I mean, I guess the idea could just be to try and split up Bledsoe and Giannis a little bit more. Like, you know, you're talking about running pick and rolls. And if Giannis is going to be the screener in those pick and rolls, it's got to be Middleton who's running it rather than Bledsoe, right? Because they're just going to duck under screens against Bledsoe. It's not going to work. But Middleton, Middleton is actually a threat to pull up. Then you might actually be able to get Giannis a little bit of runway, catching the ball in the short roll, and finding some favorable matchups in the post. I just, against Bledsoe, that combination obviously isn't going to work. So uh, maybe to clear up a little bit of the spacing issues that they've had, you just try and split those guys up a little bit more. I just think it's tough because also, you know, you like you really benefit from having both those guys on the floor when you are getting out in the open court, right? Like, and when, when they are able to run out and transition, uh, it's really effective when you have a guy like Bledsoe who can lead the break. And, and so... I don't know. I just like I don't know if the advantage the advantages actually outweigh the disadvantages there. Um, these are all tough decisions. I just think they probably have a lineup change to make, and I guess they have a few options to choose from. But one thing also, like a tactical adjustment, I just wonder if we haven't talked about Kawhi yet. I thought he was great defensively in Game Four, but there was not a whole lot he could do offensively. Part of that was the fact that he seemed just physically compromised. Whatever's going on with his hamstring, both his hamstrings, whatever it happens to be. Anytime he dunks the ball, he is limping and wincing. He is not able to create separation. Uh, he hasn't really been able to get all the way to the rim. He just doesn't seem to have a ton of lift right now. Like he had no legs under his jump shot. Didn't hit, like, I guess he hit a three late in that game, but his jumper wasn't falling pretty much the entire first half. So... I wonder, like, do they scale back the attention that they're paying him? Because part of the reason he didn't get any of his own offense in that game four was, like, the Bucks are basically playing the same defense against him that the Raptors are playing against Giannis. And I don't know if he's justifying it right now because I don't think he's really shown that he can score one-on-one against Giannis or even really Middleton that consistently. They got so many open looks out of him just passing out of traps and... You know, Norman Powell leads the Raptors in field goal attempts in that game four, and the Bucks are probably looking at that and saying, we'll live with that. I don't know. I, I think maybe they might want to just, like, take their foot off the pedal a little bit and dare Kawhi to try and beat them one-on-one. Yeah, and especially, like, if if you don't want to make that adjustment over the course of the series, like, if you're still worried enough about Kawhi, understandably slow, where, you're, where you do think, you know what, we are going to live with the other guys, fine. But... Why not at least make the in-game adjustment in game four when he was clearly hobbled and didn't have the same offensive burst? Why are you still double and triple teaming him and leaving shooters that are actually getting the job done open? I, It was perplexing to me, and I know being at the game, some Bucks media were equally perplexed. Uh, Bud was asked about this post-game four, about you know whether... They're going to need to adjust this, and Bud's are the usual, you know, we got to look at film first and whatever. But, yeah, that, you know, I'm not surprised if they come out with the same defensive alignment in Game 5. I was surprised that they didn't change it during Game 4 when Kawhi didn't seem capable of carrying the offensive load by himself, and they were right. still treating him like he was in the midst of a 45-point game. Well, that's just kind of the Bucks in a nutshell, right? They are very attached to their identity, and as they should be. It's brought them this far. They've had a magnificent season, and they were rolling in this series until Game 3. I think they have plenty of reason to trust that that system is going to carry them through, but I, I just wonder if it's not worth seeing. Hey, like, you know what? If Kawhi gets cooking against Middleton, then maybe they can 
adjust and go back to what they were doing where they're building a wall around them and daring other guys to beat them. I guess this is just the trade-off they're, they've always been willing to make. It's like, we're going to take Kawhi away and you know we're going to leave it up to anybody else to try and do some damage. And, and it worked like gangbusters in games one and two. And even game three, I mean, the Raptors pulled out that game three, but like their offense was not particularly effective in that game. So, you know, maybe they're just like, all right, like Fred Van Vliet shot five of six in this game. Norm Powell hit four threes. Gasol went three of six from deep. That's not going to happen again. We dare you to do it again. But at the same time, I mean, the Raptors shot, what, 14 for 41 from three in this game? It wasn't like an aberrant shooting performance yeah. from them either. So I don't know. Uh, I think this has the potential to be really fascinating uh it's i think it's gonna be a dogfight in game five i would probably still call the bucks a favorite in this series but obviously the raptors can completely turn things around yeah i mean I, I i couldn't call it really from here on out yeah and the one thing i'll mention too about like the bucks shooting and and some of the raptors shooting numbers i've seen a lot of people um you know on twitter whatever it is other media talk about the fact that you know the bucks their shooting is going to come around it's going to norm like normalize and the raptors won't shoot as well but it's what you just mentioned. First of all, the Raptors are by no means shooting above their heads, okay? This was a top six three-point shooting team in the regular season. They were number one after acquiring Gasol, and they're shooting well below their standards still, even in this series. The Bucks, on the other hand, everyone thinks of them as this great three-point shooting team because the volume of threes they get up is incredible. They were second only to the Rockets. They're a middle-of-the-pack team, very average when it comes to actually knocking those threes down. Right. The last five champions have all been top seven in three-point percentage. The last eight champions have all been top 10 or 11 in three-point percentage. The Bucks were tied for 14th this year. Like, they're not a stunning three-point shooting team. They are prone to go cold. There's no... The way people are talking about them is like, well, they had two bad shooting games. They're going to... They must normalize and just shoot the lights out next team. Not necessarily. They're not that great of a shooting team. They just shoot a lot. The Raptors, on the other hand, if any team is going to normalize, it would be the Raptors. Because the Bucks also give up more three-point attempts than any team. They were bottom 10 in the opponent three-point percentage. Like, they give up good looks. The Raptors have good shooters. I just would not, if I'm a Bucks fan or, you know, anyone that's on this hill thinking that at some point the Bucks are just going to set the world on fire with three-point shooting in this series, I would not bet on it. I mean, I, I again, I just, I do think that they will shoot better. I do think part of the reason they haven't shot well is that the Raptors' defense has been very good. Their closeouts have been excellent. Their rotations have been excellent. The guys they're leaving open are all the right guys. The people who are getting open threes are Giannis and Bledsoe, and that's pretty much it. Like, everything else has been very well contested in this series. So, you know, the Raptors definitely deserve a lot of credit for that. And... You know, one thing is like they, the reason the Bucks couldn't get anything going in transition in game four was they were pulling the ball out of the basket all night. The Raptors' offense finally broke out after really running in mud for the first three games of the series. So that was big. And I just, I expect a lot of that to sort of tilt back in Milwaukee's favor once they're back at home. Like, I think they're, they're going to shoot the ball better. I don't think the Raptors are going to shoot the ball as well. I don't think the Raptors can expect that kind of performance from their bench again. It's great that they got it in this game, in a, you know, a must-have game for them, uh, but I just don't necessarily anticipate it happening again. I think, you know, Serge Ibaka, once again, like every, one in every four games, Serge Ibaka comes through and just plays magnificently. I think in this one, you could probably say part of the reason for that was he played 14 minutes in a double overtime game in which almost everybody else played like 45-plus, and you could tell. You know, like he looked faster and more nimble than everybody on the floor. He was flying around on defense, destroying the Bucks on the offensive glass. 
And there's another thing. I mean, that's just been like a running theme throughout the playoffs, I think. And I remember talking even before the season started when they switched from the 24-second to the 14-second reset, whether that was going to disincentivize crashing the glass. I just remember talking about how offensive rebounds have seemingly become kind of undervalued. And I think they've played such a huge part in every series that we've seen so far. I mean, you want like Rockets Warriors, Rockets Blazers, Raptors Bucks, Raptors Sixers, like... The team that has won the possession battle, and so often that's come down to the offensive glass, has had so much success. And I've lost count of the number of times I've used like one team's offensive rebounding or size as an X factor in our yeah. series predictions. And I think the Raptors rebounded something like 31% of their own misses in Game 4. The Bucks were the best defensive rebounding team in the league this season. Like That was truly out of the norm for them. So another thing that I expect them to clean up in game five, I just think a lot of things went right for Toronto at home that aren't necessarily going to carry over. But, I mean, they're right there. And what they've done against Giannis defensively has really worked. Uh, they, they showed a bit of zone in that game four. Um, they were running like a 1-2-2, two, two, which we saw a bit in the regular season with Siakam up top. They were using Ibaka up top to kind of try and contain Giannis with his length. And then if Giannis managed to make any headway, it's like there's Lowry and Van Vliet or Green ready to dig down from the wing. Gasol is waiting on the back end. He's seeing waves of defenders, and it's making things really, really difficult for him. And he needs the rest of the guys around him to step up and help him out a little bit. Um, and, I mean, it was basically the same thing that, we, that we've seen from Kawhi, right? He needed the guys around him to step up, and they finally gave him that. And, I mean, Kyle Lowry, look, this, this was another thing. It was like the Raptors had just gotten nothing, nothing at the rim throughout the first three games. And I think finally in that game four, they scored 40 points in the paint, which was by far the most they've scored in any game this series. And uh, I thought Kyle Lowry made a, a lot of that happen with his aggressiveness. Like he was so much more willing to actually drive. I think he hit a couple pull-up threes early on that really gave him a lot of confidence. He shot 10 free throws, which is like, I can't remember the last time that Kyle Lowry shot double-digit free throws in a game, but it feels like it's been a while. He matched Antetokounmpo with nine fouls drawn right. in Game 4. And, I, you know, a lot of those weren't shooting fouls, but those but, are the kind of fouls that Lowry consistently draws right. just with his hustle, getting to loose balls, and, you know, being willing to take contact. So uh, he's been magnificent. He's been, like, by far the best point guard in this series, which is not something I expected coming in. I actually expected that, like, Bledsoe was going to give him a lot of trouble at both ends. It's been the opposite. Yeah, it's been completely the opposite. So... Uh, you know, that's as big a reason as any that the series is 2-2 right now. This is like, this is peak Kyle Lowry right now. Uh, he was magnificent in game four. And again, I mean, I just, there's there's so many interesting things happening in this series. Uh, obviously, like the Kawhi on Giannis thing has maybe been the biggest adjustment in terms of the impact that it's had. So I'm interested to see how the Bucks respond. I mean, is it, maybe they go to like more Giannis and Lopez pick and pops just because that makes it so much harder to send two to the ball if, yeah. if Giannis is the one running it. But again, it's like as long as Bledsoe's out there and they're willing to just double off of him, they're still going to have extra help defenders who are coming who can rotate over and and muck things up a bit. So I'm interested to see what happens, man. And uh, again, I, I do think the Bucks are favored. They have like the two remaining games at home. Uh, I, I would still have this going to the Bucks, but I do think it's going seven. Yeah, so do I. I agree with that. And... I think the, the Kawhi-Giannis matchup kind of, not that anyone needed a reminder, but it is a reminder of when the margins are so small between superstars at that level, <clears throat> the value of shooting. 
I mean, it, it just is what it is, right? right? And Giannis might get there one day. It obviously puts the work in to, to bring his game to what it already is. So there's no doubt he could become at least a decent shooter. But right now, you know, you're looking at a guy like Kawhi can basically do everything Giannis can do, except he can also shoot. And when the margins are that slim and the matchups are what they are, like that, that's a huge difference because Kawhi on Giannis turning him into either a jump shooter or a guy getting rid of the ball is one thing. Giannis, first of all, Giannis hasn't guarded Kawhi that much in the series, but whether it's Middleton or whoever is doing a great job on him, Kawhi can still elevate for a jumper from 15, 18, 25 feet if he has to. Yeah, I mean, just to talk more generally about jump shooting, the the Bucks. I mean, in a way, this is not entirely unexpected because the Bucks' whole scheme, both offensively and defensively, is just all about variance. They take a ton of threes and they give up a ton of threes, and so much ultimately is going to come down to whether those shots go down. And even though the Raptors didn't shoot a scorching percentage on three-pointers last night, they shot a really high percentage on mid-range jumpers. You know, Lowry got one to go down, Kawhi got a few to go down, Serge Ibaka got a few to go down. Um, so they're taking advantage of that Bucks drop back in more ways than one, and they have a lot of competent mid-range shooters, so that works to their benefit as well. Seeing Gasol being willing to take those threes without hesitation is just huge. Powell, the same thing. Like, that is exactly what they needed. It's what they needed in the Philly series that they so often weren't getting. Um, just guys willing to take the first available shot, knowing that, you know, th- this Bucks team can really swarm, they can rotate, they can close out quickly. You have a shot, you got to take it. And I think they've done a really good job of that. And um, I mean, we'll see. We'll see if they can carry it over to Milwaukee. Obviously, I think, you know, it's an old trope, but it's true. Role players just tend to shoot better at home. And they're going to have to find a way to carry it over to, uh, to the road if they want to win the series. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. All right, so uh, let's move over to the West now, where... The conference finals are done. The Warriors are in the finals for the fifth year in a row. They won this series entirely without Kevin Durant. They did it by coming back from 17, 18, and 17 points in games two, three, and four. I, I'm just amazed by what this team was able to do and like how they were able to do it. Uh, obviously, Steph Curry was magnificent. Um, Draymond Green, maybe more than any player in the league, has had a ridiculous postseason glow up uh he was the best player on the floor in a couple of those games at least and I mean I sort of said this before the series like I I you know they're not better without KD I, I don't even know really what that means anymore it's just they're so much different it's like almost comparing apples and oranges you know what I mean like their style of play changes their effort level I think changes and um, I, I just don't, I, I don't find that question interesting, whether they're better without Durant. Like to me, there's just so much more fun and that's a more interesting thing to talk about. And this was the first time in a long time that I felt like I actually had fun watching the Warriors play. I mean, yeah, I could see that. I, 
I still have a lot of fun watching them play even with KD, just because KD himself, say what you will about the guy, but my God, is he a fun player to watch offensively, especially. But is he, though? Do you I think, think he is? is? I think You don't think Kevin Durant's fun to watch? I mean, def- define fun. Like, there, there are times when I'm, like, my jaw is on the floor because I can't believe the, the extent of just, like, the one-legged fadeaways that he's hitting, like, the, de- the degree of difficulty right. on some of those shots. But the basketball itself and the way that he changes it, I feel like it devolves in a way into a style that if, isn't quite as aesthetically pleasing. I get that. But I think this is not a value judgment, by the way. I want to no, make that but, very clear. And, but what I was going to say is, I think something can be a little less aesthetically pleasing and still be fun. Like if I find myself cackling watching a guy play basketball because it's hilarious the level to which no one can stop him, that they know exactly what's coming and can still do nothing about it. If I find myself cackling about that, I mm-hmm. consider that fun. You know what I mean? And it might not be as aesthetically pleasing as the KD-less Warriors running around screens and moving the ball, that's fun in its own right. But I think both can be true, right? Like, both right. can be fun. I personally find the... the To me, when I, what I mean when I say that is, like, there is just a little bit more variability. Um, they have to be a little bit more creative uh, in terms of problem solving, and they have to play harder, straight up, you know? And, and I think... It's more energizing watching the Warriors with OKD, I'll say that. Absolutely. I mean, just... I don't know. It was, it was nice to be reminded of what this team lo- used to look like. And, you know, they, they get down double digits and they would just rip off those like 13 nothing runs in two minutes where they're turning offense to defense and they're going at warp speed. And it just looks like the Blazers have no answers. They're running in mud. They can't keep up. And I don't know. That's, that, that's the kind of basketball I think that actually, you know, attracted me to the Warriors in the first place back when they were putting this dynasty together a couple of years back. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it was, it was infinite, infinitely more interesting to me than, than watching them play, uh, you know, the last couple of years in the KD era when they have a full team. Um, so I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I think actually the Blazers had a pretty good series, you know, like they got swept, but if there was a way to sort of go down valiantly in a sweep and, you know, be able to hold your head high and say that you fought and that you gave them a pretty solid run. I almost compare it to like what the Pacers did to the Celtics in the first round where uh, the Pacers were leading every single game of that series at halftime. I think the Blazers were leading three of the last... They had a 15-point lead in the last three games. Yes, three of the last four games they were up at halftime. And again, 17 points, 18 points, 17 points in in each of those games. Um, And I thought they defended pretty well. You know, McCollum continued to be great. Lillard battled despite apparently playing through a separated rib, whatever that is. Myers Leonard comes in and has a 30-point game in Game 4. Uh, again, just a cap or two, I think, what was a pretty inspiring season from them. But just pivoting back to the Warriors quickly. So, so they've got nine days off before the finals start now. The latest report is actually that, that uh, Boogie Cousins is closer to returning than Kevin Durant is, or is at least closer to being cleared to return than Durant is. I don't know what kind of role he would conceivably have in a final series against either a Milwaukee or a Toronto team that is going to have very capable post defenders and bigs who can really stretch you out at the other end. I think that's going to be one way or another a pretty tough series for him to hang. And 
in either case, I think it's going to make more sense to play Looney starters minutes than it is to play Cousins. Yeah, look, I've, I've lost count of how many times this season I've talked about, you know, Cousins just gets rid of one of their, their one weakness, but that's against teams like Houston or, you know, the teams that can beat them with size advantage. Like, against the Raptors or even the Bucks, I, I think more so the Raptors because I think Marcus Gasol could really frustrate DeMarcus Cousins and he has in the past, but I guess Brooke Lopez could too. If... If DeMarcus Cousins isn't taking advantage inside, uh, scoring inside, dominating the glass on either end, if he's not doing those things, then it's he makes you very vulnerable on the other end. So I agree with you. I don't I don't really see a role for him in a series against Toronto or Milwaukee, and you know maybe that's part of the vincibility of the Warriors this year is that. I don't know, maybe you can win those minutes with Cousins on the floor. Maybe you hope for some chemistry issues if they're like down 2-1 and right. Cousins isn't playing or something. I, I do think there is a role for him. I just think it's going to be a pretty small one. It's I mean, Steve, Steve Kerr's out here playing like Damian Jones and you know Jordan Bell pretty heavy minutes at various points against the Blazers. And granted, you know both Milwaukee and Toronto are considerably better than Portland, but I, I think they can find some minutes for him. I just think, I think Looney's been so good and... I think the way that he plays just suits their style so much better than the way Cousins played. And again, it's not a value judgment. It's not a knock on Cousins at all. It's just for him to be effective, he needs to be a high-usage offensive player. And it doesn't really make sense for him to be a high-usage offensive player when he's playing on a team with Curry, Clay, Draymond, and KD. So, you know, if he is playing with, say, three other bench guys and like Clay Thompson, then it makes sense. You know, you can carve out 10 or 15 minutes for him where he's getting a lot of touches. You're dumping the ball down to him in the post and you hope that he's not getting burned too badly at the other end. But I think he he's, whether or not he's starting, he's going to be playing backup minutes in the finals. That's sort of how I see that playing out. Yeah. And in terms of Durant, I, I would be shocked if he's not back for game one. Like they have a, a week and a half off. He's already been off, I think a week and a half now. So that you're looking at a three week recovery period. I feel like that should be enough. But they haven't really said anything about the severity of that calf strain, and it did uh, look pretty bad when I'll it happened. I'll say this. Um, we've talked you know, ad nauseum about whether they're better without him or more fun or whatever. They, they're still obviously great and capable of winning without him. They're not beating the Bucks or the Raptors without Kevin Durant. I truly believe that. They better get Kevin Durant back, or they're not winning the championship. I mean, I took the field over the Warriors <laughs> before Durant got injured. I... I don't know if I believe that anymore. Uh, you think even without KD? I mean, it's maybe a more interesting discussion without KD, but I don't know, man. I just honestly, again, I'm not saying, it's apparently it's heresy to say this, that they're better without him. Like, I'm not saying that. I just don't think they are that much worse without him. You know what I mean? And like, I think they have enough ways to compensate for his absence I do think there would be moments in a series against one of those teams where it's like they're struggling in the half court because they actually, you know, once you get past Curry and Clay, and I know Draymond's shooting has come around and Iguodala's comes and goes, but there isn't a ton of shooting around those guys. And both the Bucks and the Raptors are very, very good at paying attention to shooters, being able to ignore non-shooters, and making things really difficult on teams who play a couple of non-shooters at once. So... You know, without Durant there to open things up, they definitely could find themselves in a bit of trouble when they're playing in the half court. But 
I don't know, man. Just like the way that they've been getting out and running. I mean, like Draymond, it's insane. He legitimately is twice as fast now as he was during the regular season. I have never seen anything like it. Pushing the ball end to end. I mean, his defense has obviously been outstanding. His playmaking on the short rolls, like peak Draymond. Um, and, you know, when Steph is playing like this, it's like it almost doesn't matter. Like you put anybody around him and you just put him in a high pick and roll. And it's like he's going to give you an above average offense no matter what. So... I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not sold that like they can't win the finals without Durant, and I'm also not sold that they're a shoe in to win the finals with Durant. I, I feel all different kinds of ways about this team right now, and I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens. Obviously, but I just, I, I, I just have to say I've really enjoyed watching them without KD, oh, and um, you know, regard whether he's back or not. Like I think, uh, I think the finals are going to be really, really fun. Yeah, I agree with that. I. The the KD Warriors thing I think is they're they're still great without him, um, unbelievably great, and the the margin between having him and not having him might not be maybe visible, but I do still think it's the difference between just being a really great team that can still lose and being invincible. Right. I mean, interestingly enough, if Durant can't play, then I do think Cousins' role becomes a little bit Agreed. more important because they are going to need, you know, against the switching defense, yes. they're going to need an isolation scorer, a guy who can take advantage of mismatches in the post. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. But um, let's go back to the Blazers for a minute. Their season ends. We've talked enough, I think, about what that season meant. I, I think it was really extraordinary. And I think I wrote this today when I was sort of doing – I did – what was kind of a joint look back and look ahead uh, to their off season. And I, I think basically any, not scuffling, but like a team that has hit its ceiling, right? A mid-market or small market team that has had to confront its own limitations. Like this is the kind of season that you dream on, right? And maybe you have to acknowledge the fact that you're just, you're not good enough to win a championship, but there are other things to strive for. And what the Blazers accomplished this season in the face of adversity, injuries, the, the moments that they authored throughout the playoffs. I mean, dusting the Thunder in five games, Lillard's walk-off bomb, C.J. McCollum's performance against the Nuggets, coming back from 3-2 down, and then coming back from 17 points down to win that game seven on the road. And even their performance against the Warriors, where they really, I think, gave them a fight despite getting swept. An extraordinary season for them. And not as exciting offseason ahead because they're totally capped out. They're butting up against a luxury tax. They have four unrestricted free agents in Aminu, Seth Curry, um, Cantor, and Rodney Hood, a restricted free agent in Jake Lehman. And now this report that they are going to offer Damian Lillard a Supermax extension, assuming he makes an all-NBA team, which he will. He will, yeah. So let's start with that Supermax. I mean, obviously... They, they kind of have to do it. Um, I think he, he just meant so much to that franchise. He means so much to that city. For a small market team to have a homegrown superstar who has so vocally, uh, you know, tied himself to that team and that, that city is like, I just, I don't know if you have a choice but to lock him in for as long as you can. But when you start digging into the numbers, man, it's like he's going to be making $52 million in his age 34 season. And we've seen how these supermaxes work out, even though, you know, when John Wall signed his, when Russell Westbrook signed his, most people said like, yeah, this is steep cost, but you have to do it. And two years later, both those contracts look borderline disastrous. Those I mean, are also two 
non-shooting point guards though that like heavily rely on 100 explosiveness 100 percent. and and i think lillard will age better than both of those guys it's more just a comment on how quickly these things can change so i think i think they probably should do it i just it's gonna be tough man and this the supermax in general just makes things tough because the fact that it is on the table if you are the team that has the ability to offer it, you almost feel compelled to do so as a show of loyalty to a player who has shown loyalty to your franchise. And especially if you're a team that maybe has a bit of an inf- an inferiority complex and maybe doesn't feel worthy of that loyalty, you got to sort of sell out to show this guy that you're willing to do whatever you can for him. So in a way, they're almost over a barrel. What, what I think this actually makes really interesting is the next couple of off seasons. And I really think the Blazers should and will be very wary of giving out any long-term money this summer because again, they're butting up against the luxury tax as it is next summer. They've got Evan Turner's contract coming off the books, Harkless and Myers Leonard's contracts coming off the books. They're actually going to have real cap space if they play this right for the first time in a while. And that's going to be the year before Lillard Supermax kicks in, which means that summer actually might be their only opportunity for a long time or ever to add an impact free agent to the Lillard, McCollum, Nurkic core. So I think this summer we might see some pretty unsexy like one-year deals. Maybe they use the taxpayers mid-level, make some moves around the margins, but I don't think it's going to be a particularly exciting offseason for them. And I think probably at least three of those free agents that they have are going to be gone. Yeah, and they might take a step back. I mean, just based on the law of probabilities, they all probably take a step back because it's very hard to get to back-to-back conference finals right. or exceed that. So, And as I wrote, I think that they could be better next year and still not make exactly. it to the conference just finals. So, That's how it works, man. Like, people... It, it, it never ceases to amaze me, I guess, the way um, fans, critics, like whatever, the way people perceive pro sports and obviously you know we're we're working in nba media so for us it's the nba but like people that have watched sports their whole life and they've been fans their whole life and yet they still don't know how to just like accept something with reason right so that if the blazers do lose in the first or second round next year after a good season like you know what the response is going to be but first of all the lillard supermax it's not even a question you got to do it and Mm -hmm. i agree with all the concerns you brought forward and yet you just got like there's not even an ounce of the Blazers front office that can that can hesitate with that. Could you imagine after all the loyalty Lillard has shown? Like this guy's the standard bearer, man. Every every piece of fabric in what the Blazers culture has become over the last half decade is because of Damian Lillard and the culture that he sets. And you can talk to anybody about that, and they'll tell you that. So to have that and then to not reward him um, to his maximum potential would be basically franchise suicide, to be honest with you. And they're not going to do that. They'll they'll make him whole. Look, are they going to construct a legit championship contender with Damian Lillard making that kind of money? Probably not. But as we've seen this year, just put yourself in the conversation and then see what happens. And if you have a player like Damian Lillard, even if the last year or two of that deal is not great, the first two or three years of the deal will be fine. And he's still going to be an all-NBA caliber player. And guess what? You need those caliber of players to even semi-contend. And unless you are the type of team like the Warriors or, you know, 
maybe a team that comes together this summer in free agency, unless you're one of those markets that can actually do that and build a legit super team, you need to rely on sustained semi-contention and then hope for a bounce your way one year here, one year right. there. And the only way you do that if you're Portland is if you retain Damian Lillard at whatever the cost. So, Yeah, and I think you know as long as Nurkic comes back in something resembling his pre-injury state, they're still going to be a good team, you know, and flirt with 50 wins again. As long as, you know, everybody else on the roster stays healthy. Yeah. But this is sort of the, the issue that they run into here is like, you know, you've got a Minu who is about to become a free agent and you obviously you don't want to overpay him and you don't want to clog up your cap sheet for all the reasons I just mentioned. And, and, you know, the promise of cap space next summer. But like, how do you replace him? You, you know, even like he had a rough postseason. His shot completely fell off. And he ended up getting benched basically at the end of the Warrior series. But I, like, where where are they getting another three and D wing who can guard you know two through four? Like, I, I just I, I don't know where that guy is coming from. And he's certainly not coming any cheaper than Aminu is going to come. And at least they have bird rights on him, so you know they don't have to worry about like those other guys. They don't have bird rights on Cantor, on Hood, or on Seth Curry, so they can only offer them one hundred and twenty percent raises. Like, I think those guys have all basically outplayed that, but. Aminu, they have a chance to bring him back, you'd hope, at a reasonable cost. And, I, like, they just have no forward depth at all. Like, I, I feel like this is sort of why I was really disappointed they didn't try and make a move for Otto Porter at the trade deadline because they they really need wing depth. And, you know, the fact that Aminu seems to be their best option right now is honestly kind of damning. Yeah, the Blazers are one of, like, seven teams that are potentially one piece away from legit contention depending on what happens with the Warriors this year. But yeah, I agree. Not, those pieces do not currently exist within the current Blazers structure. The one thing, though, I'd caution with a guy like Aminu, you know, based on the way he performed in the playoffs and in the last series in particular, is not to read too much into it because the, the postseason is designed to expose non-stars the deeper you go in the postseason. You know what I mean? It's like every year we go through this where it's, some new role player that didn't live up to the billing, whatever the case may be, in the conference finals, in the finals. Like, yeah, guess what, though? He helped that team get to that point. And, like, what are you mad about? Because he's not as good as Draymond Green when the conference right. final. Like, we knew that. So that's one thing I caution, and whether it's fans, front offices, media, whatever. Like, a role player, even a good one, having a bad series when late May and June comes around doesn't mean he's all of a sudden like not worth an investment. It just means he is who you thought he was. Right. And I mean, for a guy to be able to defend as well as he does. And again, like they just don't have any wing defenders who are nearly as good or as versatile as he is. But uh, to have that and also have a guy who shot 35% from three on a pretty high volume of attempts in his four years in Portland is pretty valuable. You know, even if it's basically just league average three point shooting, like that means something. And that's, I mean, that's basically what Trevor Ariza was for the Rockets, right? His volume was a little bit higher, but he was basically a league average three-point shooter, and that's all they needed him to be. Just be able to knock down those corner threes when he was open and, you know, be able to switch defensively and guard any number of positions. Like, it's almost... He's more important, I think, to Portland than he would be to a lot of other teams. So I think that should be their number one priority is bringing him back. Again, there there's probably a threshold that they're not going to be willing to cross, and I think that's fair. Um I guess we'll see. And I, you know, maybe the the like Jake Lehman, who's going to be a restricted free agent, maybe that plays into their thinking there. Because if they can bring Lehman back, maybe he accepts the qualifying offer, or maybe they can bring him back on like a cheap multi-year deal. 
he could be the guy to step into that role. I thought he really showed some flashes this season. He's not going to be the defender that Aminu is, but I think he actually offers a little bit more offensively. He's a really good cutter. He improved a lot as a shooter this year. Maybe he gives you a little bit more creativity. Like I think they need more playmaking from the wing too, and that's been an issue they've run into in the playoffs in a number of past postseasons, right? It's like they they just don't have enough guys on the wing who can actually make plays off the dribble, and so much falls on the shoulders of Dame and CJ. Again, it's just like, I don't know, where do you find that player, right? Like they're not going to come cheap in, in any circumstance. Like Bojan Bogdanovic is probably going to get like $15 million a year this offseason, if not more. Yeah. Um, so it's tough. Um, but again, I, I think they're going to continue to be good. I really just hope that Nurkic can come back playing like the player that he was before he got hurt because he was so damn good. And if McCollum can basically continue on the upward traje- trajectory that he seems to be on now, you know, they're going to continue to be in good shape and maybe they do find themselves back in the conference finals. But one way or another, like as long as they have that three-man core, those guys are all in their primes. They're all locked up for the next two years at least. This is still going to be a competitive team. So they're in a pretty good place. And um, again, I don't think it's going to be a particularly sexy offseason for them, but uh, they've got nothing to hang their heads about and lots to look forward to still. I know you don't want to do this, but we've got to talk a little Lakers before we get out of here. A team that doesn't have a lot to look forward to? Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. All right. I don't know. I still think they could have a lot to look forward to come July. All right. Well, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i clear out for you. You can you can say what you need to say about the Lakers, and I'll chime in if I feel it is necessary. But, yeah, I'm, I'm so tired of talking about this team, this circus. But, obviously, yeah, Magic goes on first take the other day. Breathing fire. Uh, you know, and, and the, the earth has been scorched now. So, you know, what, uh, what is left in Man, its wake? It's, it's hilarious. Like there was so much to take from that magic interview, whether it was him talking about Plinka being a backstabber, you know, the fact that people warned him around the league when they first got together with Palinka to like watch his back for him. Um, the funniest part I thought, and no one was really <laughs> talking about it, but Magic said at one point that like he was grooming Palinka to eventually take his job as president because Magic was only going to do that job for three years and that he told Rob that. And so Magic was looking at it like, look, man, like I'm going to get you ready to take this role. The reason I found that so hilarious was because how are you mentoring like a protege on a job you yourself are new to? Like, it's not like Magic Johnson's got 12 years of experience as an NBA team president where he can say to Rob Palinka, all right, this is how we do things. You know, this is how I've kind of learned yeah. on there. Like, not only that, but he straight up admitted to just basically half-assing his job exactly. and not being around that yeah. much. So it's just like hilarious to me that this guy that was new to a role himself was half-assing it, who like would have rather just tweeted his way through it and was only planning to do that job for three years, also thought highly of himself in that role to take on this like mentorship program. I don't know. It's just peak, peak magic, peak Lakers. Um, the hilarity of it all is fascinating. You talk about entertainment, like especially if you're not a Lakers fan or you're just like a neutral observer, you got, you just have to laugh at all of this. And there's definitely a bit of schadenfreude too, right? <laughs> because the La- Lakers exceptionalism has been a thing for a long time. And there's definitely an element of, you know, I don't want to say taking pleasure in it, but it's like there, there's something satisfying about seeing a team that believes so strongly in its own brand and it's just like blowing smoke up its own ass for so long 
basically get hoisted on its own petard, you know? And I, I don't know, man. Like, here's a question I have for you. Who do you think came out looking worst in, in the wake of that Magic interview? For me, personally, it was Magic. Right. Because here's the thing. I tweeted this. So, like, the Rob Palinka thing, we already knew this. We had already heard these reports that he burned a lot of bridges with agents when he was an agent and with teams and executives. And, like, nothing of what Magic Johnson said about Rob Palinka reportedly being a snake is something new. Whether you believe it or not, we've heard it before. I, I said this. Rob Palinka... For the love of God, this man got on national TV when the Lakers signed Contavious Caldwell Pope and told the world that signing KCP was equivalent to the Israelites... Manna from heaven. Yeah, blessed with bread from heaven while wandering in the desert. I don't need Magic Johnson to tell me not to trust that guy because I don't trust a guy that is confident in himself and KCP enough to say that on TV. So I didn't learn anything new about Rob Palinka. I guess what I was reminded of is that Magic Johnson again, you know, has done great things as a humanitarian, as a businessman, whatever. But in terms of like basketball executive, Magic Johnson was as big a clown as they come. <laughs> and that, that I learned more about that than I did anything new about Rob Palinka or the disaster that Jeannie Buss has got going over there. Right. I mean, I think Jeannie comes out of this looking pretty bad as well. If what Magic says is true and before Jeannie hired him, he basically told her, look, I have these other businesses I'm not going to give them up and I'm really only going to be halfway in this. I'm not going to be around a lot. And she said, that's okay. I'll hire you anyway and I'll give you full decision-making control. I mean, that is a huge screw up. Like I, I just don't understand how you could think that that's a good idea. And I mean, I guess maybe you can say that falls on both of them, you know, magic thinking that he was going to be able to pull this off. And Jeannie having enough trust in him to think that he could do that. And I think that he wasn't going to run in, into any issues, you know, basically just like not being in the, in the office and, and not really overseeing this operation when every other executive in the league for the most part is living and breathing this stuff and making it a 24 seven operation. <sighs> I mean, whatever. I, it's, we, the story here is that Jeannie Buss liked and trusted Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant more than her own brothers because the whole point of her taking this grand step of firing her own brother was that the family stuff, like, none of that was as important as restoring the Lakers brand and the Lakers greatness. And, like, this cold move, this very mama mentality move to fire your brother because you're looking out for the best of the organization. So you're telling me, but then you did that just to hire your friends who have no experience, who admitted to you they were going to half-ass the job like that to me is the takeaway from Jeannie's perspective it's why would you like if you're going to just give the job to friends and people right. that really you're have trading. no reason to earn your trust then what's why fire your brother then yeah no I mean she's just trading nepotism for cronyism exactly right? exactly and um obviously it hasn't uh, hasn't done a whole lot of good but I mean you were saying you still think that there's reason for optimism in Lakerland so they're, they're I, still the Lakers with LeBron James and Max cap space and I still, it, it still doesn't seem like they're getting any free agents, right? So, I mean, they're going to have to go the trade route. It sure seems like the Pelicans aren't interested in doing business with them. So where do they go from there? I mean, Bradley Beal maybe is an option. Is um, Like, who else realistically is on the trade market that they could target? Man, but even the Wizards, like, you know, they should trade Beal, I think, to, to really jumpstart a real rebuild. But even the Wizards, like, are you giving Beal away for 
some combination of those Lakers youngsters, and I guess maybe with the number four pick now in play, I mean, that's a big part of it too. The Lakers had a pretty good lottery night. Number four pick in a three-player draft? Yeah, true. Maybe and, a two-player draft? Yeah. Also, by the way, through all of this, they also hired Frank Vogel. He was like their fourth choice, and he got the job. Which is fine. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Vogel's just, a fine coach. I just think it's hilarious that they hired a, a new head coach this week, and no one's talking about it because all anyone's talking about is the, I mean, the it's gong st- show. Yeah, I mean, it's still insane that they foisted Jason Kidd on him. Like, forced, forced him to be on the staff. For what reason? I still, it still makes no sense to me. Like, I, I just, what has Jason Kidd done as an NBA coach that, like, makes a front office want that to be the hill that they die on? Literally nothing. Um, anyway, like, can we put this to bed? Yeah. I mean, we, how many times have we said that, that we're not going to talk about the Lakers anymore? Oh, I fully they expect just, we'll be talking about the Lakers before free agents. It's, yeah. it's happening. All right, before we sign off here, um, all defensive teams were just announced, and here they are. The f- first team, Rudy Gobert, Paul George, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Marcus Smart, Eric Bledsoe. In fact, the exact first team all defense that I picked when we, when we made our picks, um, when was that? About two months back, before, uh, before the playoffs started. And on the second team, Joel Embiid, Draymond Green, Kawhi Leonard, Drew Holiday, and Clay Thompson, which differs quite significantly from my second team. Uh, I think I had Miles Turner on there. I had PJ Tucker on there. I had Patrick Beverly and Derek White on there. Um, Kawhi Leonard, interesting choice. He played 60 games. I don't think he really exerted himself on defense throughout the season. I think that's a reputation pick. Holiday, I think, earned it. Clay, I think, probably earned it, even though I think he coasted on defense as well for How parts of the season. How Patrick Beverly finish sixth among guards in all defensive voting? Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, That's tough. Um, but I thought, I mean, uh, Danny Green finished fifth, right? So, I mean, he, he definitely had a strong case as well. Like, yep. um, any of these, like, these are all deserving guys for the most part. I think Kawhi is maybe like the one egregious guy who, as good a defender as he can be at his peak, just really wasn't playing at that level for any part of this season. Whoever gave Damian Lillard and, um... <laughs> Kyrie Irving Bradley Beal got a vote but see I, I'm not as ba- like down on the Beal vote as you are I don't think he should have got a vote for all defensive team but I think he's a more capable defender than Kyrie Irving and Damian Lillard like I maybe more capable was he a better defender than those guys probably, this year absolutely but the not the point is with those three guys and I know it doesn't matter in the end it was just a vote they didn't get the actual recognition but that, like three people who cover basketball for a living and get a vote on NBA awards deemed Bradley Beal, Damian Lillard, and Kyrie Irving as top four defensive guards in the NBA. Pretty wild. I can't believe that P.J. Tucker has never made an all-defensive team. This is just egregious to me, man. Um, Absurd. And I think, you know, you you could have made a case for him in any of the last four seasons. This, to me, was his best defensive season. And I really thought he deserved to get recognized. Um, I also had Thaddeus Young on my second team. He didn't get a single vote. Uh, Paul Millsap was there in the mix. He got a few votes. Uh, you know, he was also pretty deserving. Obviously, like every year, there are going to be snubs, and I don't think this is like a particularly egregious year in terms of the snubs here. But uh, I do think they got the first team right, so that's a plus. But it's just always tough when there's like a reputation pick that you feel wasn't earned. But props to Kawhi, who's showing in the playoffs that he really is still one of the top defenders in the NBA. Draymond Green, the same thing. I mean, I didn't put him on either of my all defensive teams because I thought. Again, he just coasted throughout most of the regular season, but he's proven once again in the playoffs that he's probably the best defender in the NBA right now. 
And so it's hard to quibble with that. I just think I, I thought that PJ really deserved to get recognized. And I thought Beverly and Derek White did as well. Yep. Um, so I guess we can leave it at that. Um, we actually are going to have another mini episode tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have Mina Masood, who's the star of the new live action Aladdin movie on the show. He is, um, Egyptian born, but Toronto raised and is a big Toronto Raptors fan. So we're going to have him on to talk some Raptors. So look out for that tomorrow. Um, but for now we're signing out for Joseph Cacharo. I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to y'all soon.